With your Bible open this morning to the second epistle of Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, and while you're turning to that, may I welcome also Dr. Mark Taylor. If you go to Dr. Mark Taylor's class expecting to learn Greek and find that you're in a conducting class, that's because there are two Mark Taylors. I have designated them now as Mark M. Taylor for music and Mark G. Taylor for Greek. So be sure you get the right one if you're looking for a particular subject matter. But welcome, Mark Taylor. Uh, as a professor of conducting, we're delighted to have you here. And uh, I want you to see the orchestra. Aren't they a beautiful group? And uh, do they not do a wonderful job? When you go to your first pastorate, the first thing you do is find you the best nursery worker in town. Remember, that's the essential you got to have. You can't exist without a good nursery worker. If they put you in there in the nursery, the parents will stay away in huge numbers. You get somebody that knows what they're doing in the nursery department. The second thing you do is to get you a minister of music that knows how to build an orchestra. Because did you notice how much fuller the sound was with the orchestra playing so beautifully? There is no substitute for a good orchestra. And the third thing you do is to get you a minister of missions that will keep the missionary cause in front of them. If you heard Todd's testimony this morning and you are unmoved by that, I can only conclude that you don't really believe in eternal hell. You don't really really believe in the blood atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross, and you don't care if those millions of people go to hell. It ought to wake us up in the middle of the night thinking about those people that have never heard the gospel. And consequently, during this week, while we have many personnel from around the world here on campus, you want to go to Todd or go to many of these others that are here and talk to them about the possibility. And if you don't know for sure what God has called you to do already, you just know that there's a call. You need to talk to them and see if there is a possibility that God is leading you to place your life someplace like that. What an opportunity. And I pray that you will take advantage of the opportunity we have during this week to do that. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, we read, but I want you to keep your Bible open because we're going to start in chapter 1, but we'll end in chapter 3. For this reason, verse 12, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you by to stir you up by reminding you knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me moreover I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my and it uses an interesting word there the word is ex hadas after I leave the way after my exodus, after my decease. 
Well, why is that? For we did not follow cunningly devised muthos, myths, fables, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when a voice came to him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. But we have a more sure word of prophecy that you would be well to heed as a light that shines in dark place until the day star arises and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Our Lord had prophesied that Simon Peter would die a martyr's death. He lived every moment of his life coming up to that moment when he knew he would give his life for Christ. And he knew that it was not too far away. Shortly, he would be, according to tradition, crucified upside down because he said, I am not worthy to die even as my Lord died. We don't know about exactly how it happened or where it happened. There are those who believe that Simon Peter was never even in Rome, and there is no uh, consequential evidence to make us believe that he was in Rome, but wherever he was, he gave his life for the cause of Christ. And so he says, now, I know I'm about to leave. I'm about to, to undergo an exodus, and it's important for me to leave with you something that is of critical and crucial nature that I don't want you to miss. And so when I'm gone, if you don't remember anything else, I want you to get this. My tent, he calls his body, because it is just that. It's a tent, and uh, tents aren't made to last forever, and he's going to put aside his tent for a glorified body that will make the tent look insignificant by comparison, and you can look forward to that. But he said, now look, I just want you to, to know something. We did not follow cunningly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in years gone by, a famous German New Testament scholar by the name of Rudolf, Rudolf Bultmann popularized the idea of demythologizing the Bible. He said, uh, there's some great information in the Bible, things you need to know, but it is presented to you in a whole series of myths. And these myths represent some of the religious experience of the people who had them, but they are not to be taken seriously. You have to get the theological kernel out of the myth 
that houses it. And so we need to be demythologizers and get rid of the myth and keep the kernel of truth. Now, what happens when you do that has been uh, stated very clearly uh, in a number of times, but I'm going to recommend three books to you today. I often don't do that, but I'm going to recommend RPC and his son A.T. Hansen, The Bible Without Illusions. I wish everyone you could read this. Look at there, it's not a long book, won't take you long to read it. I wish you'd look at these books. They are all very short. You don't have to be a German and write forever uh, when you write a book to, to write a really cool book. You can write a very short book, and if it is uh, uh, to the point, it's a, it's a great book. This book, The Bible Without Illusions, tells you exactly where somebody ends up who demythologizes, who takes on the spirit of biblical literal, liberalism. Here's what our PC and his son A.T. Hansen say, quote, historical criticism has demolished the Bible as we know it. Moses had not written the Pentateuch, nor David the Psalms, nor, nor Solomon the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, nor Matthew and John the apostles, the gospels attributed to them, nor Paul the epistle to the Hebrews, nor the, uh, nor the pastoral epistles. The book of Daniel was not written by a mystic predictor in the seventh century before Christ. He had the wrong century, by the way. But... Uh, among a host of anonymous sources, apparent history was in many cases discovered to be fable, saga, or myth. Samson disappeared into the sun myth. The historical existence of Abraham and Joseph and Esther became highly precarious. Evidence for miracles recorded in the Old Testament was completely discredited. Joshua was not, uh, did not stop the sun, nor Balaam converse with his ass, nor Jonah had that remarkable experience with the whale. Doesn't say the whale, says it was a great fish. Come on, at least get it right. It became completely impossible to regard the Bible as an infallible or inerrant book in any meaningful sense. So say they. And on and on and on and on they go. I want you to see where this idea will lead you. A while ago, Dr. McCarty referred to a recent sermon delivered by a very popular preacher. And he said in it, the beginnings of the very thing that the Hansons take all the way, and that is that you cannot believe the Bible at every point. You have to find a canon within a canon. Gerhard Mayer, the end of the historical critical method, tells about what happens when you seek a canon within a canon. For example, the preacher who preached the other day said that the canon is the resurrection. We don't need to emphasize the reliability of the Bible. We just need to emphasize the reliability of the resurrection. May I ask you please a question? How, may I ask, did you ever hear about the resurrection? There's not a thing in the world in the literature of antiquity about the resurrection. All you ever read or hear about the resurrection is from the Bible. 
Well, maybe so, but you have to, to be the high priest of biblical interpretation. And you have to be able, like Bultmann, to distinguish between what is myth on the one hand and what is reliable on the other. Oh, but dear preacher, what makes you the authority? How come you can do that and I can't? How come this man out there can do it and this woman cannot? How is it that we gain this priesthood of the scholars and you, pastor, who are not even a scholar, are up telling us that the canon is a resurrection? No, let me tell you the truth. Consistency demands that if you're looking for a canon within a canon, you've got to identify the high priesthood of canonicity who will tell you what is reliable and what is not. And nobody but nobody can ever see the end of it. So I want you to know about a third book, Historical Criticism of the Bible by a woman named Etta Lenemann. Who in the world was Edelinamon? And yes, I know you've never heard of this book, but you need to get it, all three of them, and understand what it says. Edelinamon was the number one favorite student of Rudolf Bultmann, to whom I referred a moment ago. She studied with him. She worked with him day after day. She became his prize student. She published numerous books on historical criticism, calling into question the things of God's Word. And then one day something happened. Etta Lenemann had a witness given to her, and her soul confirmed the reality of it, and Etta came to Christ and trusted him as her Savior. She wrote this book and several others to say, if you've got any of my former books, do what I did with them and throw them in the trash. That's exactly what they are. They are testimonies to unbelief. She said, I have found the Lord. And when I found the Lord, I discovered that every word that he ever had to say in God's word was absolutely true. And Adelina Mann, the star student of Rudolf Bultmann, turned away from it all. Now, is that what our writer in Peter is saying, well, look what he says. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But look at this. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses. Listen, if I saw something, how could anything be any clearer? I saw it. I was an eyewitness. And he takes one particular interest, incident. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He is referencing the moment of the, when he, along with two other disciples, were with Jesus on the mountain, and our Lord was transfigured before them. Now, that is more obscure than the resurrection. There are many who, visit, who, who experienced resurrection, over 500, most of whom were with them at the day when he wrote about it, and there were only three there, 
at his transfiguration, but one of them says, we were eyewitnesses, all right? And not only that, but he received glory and honor from the Father when a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Oh, he was an eyewitness. Man, that's strong proof. What I see with my eyes, I am inclined to believe. But it's not just that. We heard the voice of God. <laughs> that's, that's powerful. We heard the voice that came from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Man, we saw it and we heard it. Oh, yeah? Very good. But we have a more certain word that you would do well to heed. A more certain word? You mean we have something that is more certain than what they saw, more certain than what they heard? Well, yes, you can be sure you saw something. And it can work out that it was an illusion. You can be sure that you heard something. And then if you're deaf in one ear and you can't hear out of the other like I am, you may have missed it altogether, and it may not be what you think, and you may answer the wrong question with your response. So, all of that could be misleading. But no, we have a more certain word of prophecy, and you would do well to listen to it, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, look, you can get that in English. But in the next few moments, we're going to have a Greek lesson. The ultimate purpose of this Greek lesson is to convince you that if you're serious about knowing God's Word, you better learn to read it as it was written in Greek. I can't do that. You can't do it because you say you can't do it. Of course you can do it. And if you really want to see what I'm going to show you in the next few moments, you're going to have to get your Greek New Testament. No excuse for you not getting Greek. You say, I'm in music. Get Greek. You say, I'm in counseling. You'll counsel better with Greek. You say, well, but I'm in Christian education, and you'll be a lot more educated with Greek, and so by all means get it. Now, here's what he says. Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any edios epilusios. Edios epilusios. Edios is the word that gives us our word idiot. Adios means one's own. An idiot is a person who is overly concerned about himself to the exclusion of everybody and everything else. That'd be an idiot, wouldn't it? 
Well, that's the word where we get our word idiot. Edios means one's own. Epilusios, on the other hand, is a combination of two Greek words. It's got your verb, luo, there. And uh, that's the verb, of course, that you'll memorize. Oh, you'll wake up in the middle of the night. Luo, luai, sluai, lumen, luiti, lucy. And you'll go on and on. One night, in the middle of the night, my sweetheart woke up, and uh, she was going through her Hebrew conjugation. I tried to stop her a couple of times. I was sleepy. But she didn't stop, and I realized that she was still asleep. And she went on and on and went through the whole thing. And then, without even looking at me, still looking straight ahead and totally asleep, she said, did I get it right? Now, first, I had not the foggiest notion whether it was right or not. But second, I wanted to go to sleep. So I said, got it perfect. <laughs> Back on the pillow she went and continued sleeping. That's what you'll do. When you start in with Luo, Luai, Sluai, Luomen, Lucy, Luity, Lucy. And so you will learn to parse the verb, Luo. What does it mean? It means to loose. Epilusios, to loose upon you. Uh, no passage of Scripture, no prophecy of the Word of God is of anyone's private loosing upon you. Uh, one day, John was on the island of Patmos, and he said, man, I don't have anything else to do. I think I'll write the apocalypse today. <laughs> man, the apostle Paul is sending a slave back to, to a slaveholder, to Philemon, and, and he wants to be sure. It's just right. He said, well, I'll just write him a, a note. Better yet, I'll send him an email. And uh, uh, no, huh? no prophecy of Scripture came of anyone's private loosing upon you. No, indeed. How did it come about? Here it is. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to show you something you could never get without Greek. So hang in there with me. In verse 17, you see, there came a voice from heaven. The voice came to him from your excellent glory. Look in verse 18. We heard this voice which came from heaven. Second time he says that. There's a third time in verse 21. Prophecy never came now by the will of man. Now, every one of those... Uh, is a perfect tense of a verb that is used one more time in verse 21, and that is the word moved. It is the same identical word. A voice came from him in the excellent glory. And we heard this voice which came when we were on the mountain. And prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved. There the word is again. Now, some of you are following in your Greek New Testament right now, and you're saying Patterson has lost his mind. Why, that word Pharaoh, moved there, is not at all the word for voice came. That's anagthysis in Greek, 
That doesn't even look anything like Pharaoh. No, but you'll learn that it's a deponent verb. And consequently, it's a deponent of this very verb, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh means to pick up and bear along. I ask you, how did fallible men write infallible truth? How did they do that? They were picked up by the Holy Spirit and born along to write that truth. Now, they could not have done it because men are fallible and men are errant. There is no way they ever could have written infallible, inerrant truth without the interposition of the Holy Spirit of God. But according to this, God's Spirit gave holy men of God, the Word of God, and they bore it along above error and above mistake and above their own limitations. Unbelievable. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, the reason you can take every word of God to be true is that the Spirit of God moved them along. Now, please understand, this does not make understanding the Bible a simple matter. It is simple to understand the most critical things, namely the nature of salvation and how a man is saved. But the other truths of God's Word are as vast and deep as the Bible itself, and they only yield to one who studies and knows them by heart. The same Holy Spirit that inspired them becomes our teacher. And make no mistake about it, there is no more important ministry of the Holy Spirit than the teaching ministry in the heart of the believer. The one that inspired it teaches it to us as we read it and study it. That does not mean that they're not problem texts in God's Word. There are many texts in the Bible that on the surface seem to be irreconcilable with one another. It appears that one is in contradiction to another. But generally speaking, they yield to sufficient study, and you understand that they're not. And even where we can't ultimately reconcile them, how is it that we are smart enough to take an event that happened 2,000 years ago, we're given the broad outline of it, how can we conclude that it is wrong when we're 2,000 years removed from it or 4,000 years? Fact of the matter is there is no good reason to find fault with the Word of God because the Holy Spirit picked them up and moved them along. Well, I've got one more thing, and I can do it quick. But, you see, Simon Peter was talking about the Old Testament. Wasn't talking about the New. Most of the problems we think we have are with the Old, but uh, lots of problems with the New. Uh, for example, uh, which gospel is first? Oh, you can get a fight going about that any day. Uh, uh, is Revelation really a book that should be in the Bible? Um, and... Uh, 
uh, what, uh, who wrote Hebrews? Of course, we know here, but uh, many people don't. And uh, so, um, the, the, the difficulties abound in the New Testament. Paul was just talking about the Old, uh, Peter was just talking about the Old Testament here. Well, let's see. Chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Now, which Old Testament book did Paul write? He's talking about the epistles of Paul, as also in all of his epistles. Oh, you know about more than one of them, yeah. Uh, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. <laughs> I love that. There are a lot of people that think there's no humor in the Bible. And actually, the Bible's full of humor. It is so funny that Peter here accuses Paul of writing hard things to understand when he wrote the most difficult passage in the New Testament, namely the spirits in prison. And yet he comes along and he accuses Paul of it. I love it. If I were Paul, I would have objected. But nevertheless, here we go. In which are some things that are hard to understood, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of Holy Scripture. Now, I want you to see what he's doing here. First of all, he says that we're talking about untaught and unstable people. When somebody disbelieves the Word of God and goes out of their way to try to prove that it is not reliable, they haven't told you anything about the Bible. They've told you something about their own heart. That's exactly right. I don't care who it is. I know that'll get tweeted out, and it's okay. I'm very comfortable with that. Whatever folks have to say about it, it's the truth. They've told you more about their heart than they have about anything else. These are unstable and unlearned men who haven't done their homework at best, and at worst, they are unstable. And they twist it. The word is strabusen in Greek, and it literally means to pick up something and wring it out, to twist it, to just take it and, and take the pattern of it and change it completely by twisting it. You've seen people do something like that, haven't you? And twist it. And man, that ruins the Word of God when you twist it. It just messes it all up. Is that what it says? No. They twist to their own destruction. You don't need to worry about it when people are attacking God's Word. They've been doing that since time immemorial. Why, Satan began it in the garden. Has God really said, you shall not eat of all the trees in the garden? Come on. You're not going to believe God, are you? It's what God has spoken. Who can know anything like that? Has God really said? Well, he raised a question about the veracity of the Word of God. And since that time, 
until this, there have been constant questions raised about the Word of God because Satan knows that if he can get you to begin questioning the Word of God, he will eventually destroy you. It's exactly what he wants to do. And when men come along and like Bultmann and uh, like the Hansons and like others and even this preacher attempt to get you to believe that the Bible is not reliable, understand that even if it is not their intention, what they are actually doing is working at your destruction. If you can't believe the Bible is the Word of God, then you're looking for the canon within the canon. For this man, Jesus is love. That's the canon. For this man, resurrection. That's the canon. For this man, it's the, it's the uh, uh, mountaintop experience with the Lord Jesus and his transfiguration. For this man, it's this. For this man, it's the other. But we're all looking for the canon within the canon. No two of us agree about what that is. And consequently, you cannot know for sure what God has said. They twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. On February the 3rd of last year, Nikolai Alexandrinko breathed his last and slipped out into eternity. Nikolai Alexandrinko was an interesting person. He had been born on the 7th of May in 1922, so he lived a, a long life, but it was a close call because in 1940, he was in Russia, where he was a citizen, and he joined the Russian paratroopers to fight against Hitler and the Germans. And uh, as a member of the paratroopers, he was caught in a situation where he was wounded. He was hit in the chest with a bullet. He was hit in the leg with a bullet. It's hard to do a lot when you've been hit in the chest with a bullet. And it was a miracle that it did not kill him. He had been taught, like all the Russian paratroopers, that he was never, ever, ever to give up to the Germans, that to do so was a matter of disloyalty to his own government, that he was to use every bullet he had to kill as many Germans as possible, save one, the last one he was to use on himself. Alexandrinko was sitting there, badly wounded, as the Germans closed in, and he had one bullet left. He seriously considered using it. But something told Alexandrinko that this was not the right thing to do. Funny he thought about right and wrong because he was an atheist and he really didn't believe that there was anything like right and wrong. But he just somehow knew that it was not right. I hope you'll remember that. We live in a time when suicides are spiraling now and some of you are going to have some dark days. and You're going to think about whether you should take your life or not. Remember that it's the most selfish human act that anybody can possibly do. 
It was totally thoughtless for all the people who love you, and many more do than you realize. And don't take your life. God is the giver and the taker of life. We're on his timetable, not our own. Don't you impose it. Alexander Drinko, for some reason, couldn't do it. And so the Germans took him captive. For three years, until the end of the war when he was finally liberated, Nikolai Alexandrinko lived life miserably in a detention camp for enemy soldiers. During that time, he nearly froze to death. He nearly starved to death. He went from one emergency to the other. One day, he decided to try to build a fire to warm his shivering body which did not have adequate clothing in the cold of the year. He was digging around in a, in a can that had held food at one time, and he found a little piece of paper that he thought would help him ignite the fire. And Alexandrinko was just about to put it on top of the flame and ignite it, on top of the sticks and ignite it, and he saw that there was some writing on it took it back and looked at it and said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and invite me in, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. Nikolai Alexandrinko couldn't read anything else. The rest of it had all been burned. That was all that was available to him. But it so puzzled him what this could mean and what he could be talking about that he just kept it with him. He kept it in his pocket. It was really the only possession he had. And for the next six months, he walked around with that in his pocket, looking at it continually and wondering what on earth could it mean. Then he was liberated from prison camp. The first place he went was the Baptist Fellowship in Munich. And he asked them, is this part of the Bible? And they said, yes. He said, what does it mean? And they explained to him what it meant. Nikolai Alexandrinko received Christ as his Savior. He came to this country as a refugee. He attended Louisiana College, our Baptist college in the state of Louisiana. He went on to New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and having completed degrees at both at New Orleans and at Tulane University, he returned to Louisiana College where he finished his life as a professor of God's Word. You tell me the Word of God is not powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword? There's an atheist in a German POW camp messing around in a box, and somebody left a track in there that was almost consumed, but it had the Word of God, and as soon as he read it, it spoke to him. Now, let me tell you, the Bible doesn't save you, Jesus saves you. 
You are saved by repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you don't know about any of it, save as it comes from the gracious Word of God. Be faithful in holding it dear and preaching its message wherever you go.